0: It is really, really lovely to be here this morning, and what a lovely place you have. And just coming in, and it's been—it's felt very welcoming. So, thank you for welcoming me so warmly. Um, I love getting to do this because it means that I get to come out and thank people face to face. And I—we've I, had sort of volunteer speakers that work all across the country um, and I'm one of the ones that I'm a volunteer speaker but I also work at Tier Fund, so I spend a lot of time sitting in the office um, and you know speaking to supporters by email or phone but this is this is the real privilege bit when I get to come out and see you face to face and say thank you face to face so it really is a privilege for me to be here thank you and thank you for um, for all you do for us it really is such a blessing. So I hope this morning that you're encouraged as you hear what um, I share. There's sort of going to be two main points that I'd love to sort of, you know, that you'll hopefully will take away at the end. Um, But it's quite exciting being here partly because I get to share as well from, I got back on Tuesday from the Middle East. Um, where I was visiting some of Tier Fund's work, and I was there, I sort of saw, went to Lebanon and Jordan um, in the first sort of week, and then I spent a little bit of time in the second week exploring the Holy Land as a bit of a holiday, so um, I've come back just feeling so full of lots of things in my head. Um, It's great to be able to be able to share some of that with you this morning. Um, So first of all, I'd like to take you to the Middle East, Um, And I'm going to get you to imagine something with me. Now, you can close your eyes if you want to, but feel free to keep them open as well. That's entirely up to you. So let's go to the Middle East together. Imagine that you're sitting in a home in Lebanon. You're sitting on a sort of a cushion around the room, these square sort of foam cushions and all laid down on the floor around the room. There's concrete walls on two sides. And the other two sides are made up of sort of just sheets and tarpaulin. It's all that you could really get your hands on. You've tried your best to make it a comforting home, to make it somewhere that is nice to live. You've picked up materials wherever you could to decorate it. But it doesn't really make it watertight. And it's a bit hot in the summertime. And you can add more space because there is no more space. The room that you're sitting in doubles up as a bedroom for your whole family and at night you lay down with your children and you tell them stories of what their real home is like, a home that they may not even remember. Eight years ago you left a country that was ravaged by war. You were forced from your home that you fled not knowing where you would end up but you hoped that it would bring some kind of safety for you and your family. And the one thing that you do know right now, as you sit in your home, is that it's safe from bombs and gunfire. And that is something to be thankful for. You listen to your children playing outside. It's midday and they should be at school. But you can't get access to the schools in a country that simply does not want you. Where do you fit in? And how long will this go on for? Does anyone know or even care that you are here? You make money where you can. You seek small jobs that will offer you little bits of cash to get you through the day. You think of the job you had back in Syria and the stable income that it brought. Yesterday was a bad day. There was no work and no income. You wonder what you're going to cobble together for your kids to eat tonight. As you sit in your home, you're aware that the suffering and need is all around you. So many people from all different parts have gathered here. So many ramshackle homes, so many people squeezed into small spaces, and so many people trying to get through the day, yet still you feel lonely and isolated. The loneliness runs so deep that it aches. You think of those friends that you had back in Syria, having tea together with them, sharing life together, Where are they now? Some of those friends you know have died. They were lost to the war. And others have travelled to other parts of the world. What can you do? What hope do you have? And then as you're sitting there, you're reminded of a story. A story that you heard last week about a man called Jesus. I'm now going to read this passage to you. As Jesus feeds the five thousand, Matthew fourteen to th- thirteen to twenty-one. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. But we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, Besides women and children, you can open your eyes again now, <laughs> unless you're having a wee nap. <laughs> um, in Matthew fourteen, we find one of Christ's most favourite, his most famous miracles. Now, what's known as the feeding of the five thousand, but this was actually a miracle on a much grander scale. Scripture says that 5,000 men were present besides women and children, meaning that there were likely closer to around 15,000 people gathered around Jesus, and he fed every single one of them until they were full. When Mark 6 describes the same parable, he says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. These people were shot through with grief and sorrow. John the Baptist, one of their spiritual leaders in the verse before, had been brutally beheaded. At the news of his dear cousin's murder, Jesus retreated to a desolate place to mourn. But the crowds were also grieving and they followed him desperate for hope in the midst of hurt and for light in the darkness. As their maker, Jesus knew the crowd's deepest needs were spiritual. Yet he didn't raise past their immediate physical needs too. And in verse 14, we catch a glimpse of a thread that weaves through the miracles of Jesus. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Compassion motivated Jesus to feed the crowds. He satisfied their physical hunger so they could see that he alone is capable of satisfying their spiritual hunger. So just imagine how powerful this passage would be for that person sitting on those cushions in Lebanon. You hear of this Jesus, who when he arrives on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, he sees this crowd of people and he has compassion on them. And he brought healing. He has compassion for the poor and hungry. And as that person in Lebanon, you would be so, so hungry, not just for food, but for hope of some kind. You think of the needs in your country after years of conflict and you feel overwhelmed at the need. And like the disciples, you say to yourself, the need is too great. There is not enough amongst us. So what did Jesus do with all that need? What did he do? In the verse in Matthew, it says, they do not need to go away. Bring them here to me. He brought the people close to him. He took only five loaves and two fish. He looked around for any resources that he had, and he used it. He used what was in his hands. Jesus' question was, how much bread do you have? In other words, what have you got in your hands What is it in your hands that you have? It wasn't what don't you have, it was what do you have? I mean, it was almost sort of laughable. We only have just five loaves and two fish. This is not very much. And sometimes the not very much can be so much. We hear of this incredible miracle happening. The disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. After he blessed the food, they distributed it. And next to nothing became so much that the disciples ended up picking up the leftovers they all ate and they were all satisfied imagine what this hope this story could bring you learn of a god that is love and compassion a god who provides a god who wants to be with you and the people around you too he wants to build a relationship with you in a place where you feel isolated and ignored on the edges of society, without a hope for a future, or security of knowing where your next meal will come from, this is the God that you hear of. And so this brings me to my first point. With God, less is more. He doesn't focus on their lack on what they don't have. Instead, he looks at what they do have in their hands when we travel to see tier fund communities that we've been working through, we so often hear stories from people about how their mindsets have been changed and how the church has been meeting with people and helping them to see things differently. They tell us that before they were stuck in this cycle of just always seeing what they didn't have. And we can all do that at times. I know I do. <laughs> um, I once met this man in Malawi. And each day, a facilitator came from the church and spoke to him. And he would ask this man, what is it that you have? And the man that I met said, he used to just respond, well, I have nothing because I'm poor. And then the next day, the man from the church, this facilitator, would return again to him and ask him the same question. And the man said, well, the next day, I said the same. I'm among the poorest in my community. I literally have nothing. And the man said, and then the next day, the church, the guy from the church who was doing the facilitating sessions, came again and said, what do you have? And the man then said, look, seriously, I have told you, I am so poor, I have nothing but this bike that I got here on. And this light bulb switched on in his head. And so by the time I met this man, he was telling me about how this little bike had become a taxi business for him. And he turned it into a business. He now takes people from the village in the morning into the town for work and gets paid to do it. His mindset completely changed. He stopped focusing on all that he didn't have and he realised that with God, less was so much more. That rickety old bike became something so powerful in his life. So the last couple of weeks since I got back, I've been thinking about some of the things that we saw. And one of the things that struck me most was how the churches responded in Lebanon. When the Syrian people started arriving in Lebanon, when the conflict started, it really wasn't easy for the Lebanese people. Because from 1975 to 1990, Syria was involved in a war in Lebanon. And following that war, there was then a Syrian occupation that lasted until as recently as 2005. Now, we can't even begin to imagine how it felt for the people of Lebanon to see suddenly these Syrian people once again coming over the border into their country, only six years after their country was occupied by them. Syria's brutal conquering of Lebanon and the continuous persecution of the people caused more than 100,000 casualties It led to the destruction of entire cities and imposed displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. And there were many documented Syrian crimes against the Lebanese people. So how do the churches respond in a situation like that? I had to ask myself, how would I respond in that situation? I really, I actually don't know what I would do. The churches in Lebanon had very little by way of resources and there were already so many needs within their country that they were struggling to meet. So these churches had to decide how they were going to respond. And it was not easy. Many of the people left their churches when they heard that their church was going to respond to the Syrian people. And many churches just decided that it wasn't their role to help them at all. But many, many churches decided that they were being invited by Jesus to do something altogether radical, something that was humanly impossible, and something that others would completely disagree with. Many people realized that Jesus wasn't focusing on their lack, on all that they didn't have or couldn't do, and whether they lacked the ability to forgive, to love, or lacked resource, time, or facilities, Jesus was asking them what they did have and what they can do. Now, Tearfund had the privilege of coming alongside some of these churches, and we have been now for the last, since the war started in Syria. We've been ma- helping them to respond in ways that they could, you couldn't even have begun to imagine. And the first church that we went to in Beirut was this small church. It was at this top of this hill. And we were driven by this young girl called Anna. She was telling us that she was on, what, in five committees out of 15 committees that the church has. I don't know how many committees you have as a church, but I thought that was pretty good. Um, they, she then introduced us to this chap called David, um, and David um, had been helping with some of the classes that this church was running for the Syrian refugees. He was telling us that this is a small church, has 60 people um, coming along on a Sunday, and as a church they were serving 450 families from Syria and refugees. We were amazed at their in, like, innovation and what they'd been doing, they had decided that there was lots of things they could do as a church. They were being salt and light in their communities, reaching out in love. They were bringing the little that they had, offering it to God and saying, do more with this little that we have. We visited some little skills training rooms that had been turned into sort of, it was so that people could learn basic electrics so they could become electricians. Um, And that helped some of the Syrian refugees to get small jobs that they could get money for. Um, and this one particular class, we were told, had been put together by lots of people in the church. So David himself was a carpenter and he'd made these little stands. Somebody else had been a plumber and had fixed this little room up so that it was, they had, had water in it. And somebody else was a painter. And so the whole church had got together, brought the skills that they had, and created this space for the Syrian refugees to come and to learn so that they could go out skilled. I was literally so surprised just to see how much they were doing. So when we're willing to offer our lives sacrificially, giving up our hold on what God has given us in terms of time and money and talents, and in this case, the Lebanese gave their hearts, and they trusted God where they didn't believe they could after all that they had been through. God will use ordinary things and ordinary people to create extraordinary things and to do the extraordinary Our resources are never too little to serve God. And God delights in taking something that's humble and seemingly insignificant and using it for his glory. And that brings me to my second point. God's good idea is you. He uses his church to heal the world. And it's just always incredible as Tier Fund to see churches around the world that are being used to heal God's world. Later that same day, we met a little lady called Rosetta. She was a member of another church that Tearfund had been working with and she wanted to share her personal story with us. During the Syrian occupation, Rosetta and her family had remained in Beirut. She told us that she'd witnessed some really terrible scenes and on the last day of fighting in 1990, Rosetta was standing by a window in her house with her husband, and she saw troops, Syrian troops, coming towards the house. She knew that if they found her in the house, and found her family in the house, that they would, she would be killed. So there was always this choice to either run or to hide. And they decided on this case to run. Rosetta, at the time, was pregnant with her second child. Her husband took their son, and together they ran from the house. They dodged through these streets with others in the same predicament. They saw some more troops up ahead of them and wondered if they could finally relax. Could these be Lebanese troops? But as they got neither, they realised that they were in fact Syrian troops and they were trapped between two walls of Syrian troops. The people were then lined up against a wall, the Lebanese people that she'd been running with. Rosetta stood there with her husband and her son. And she prayed as she heard the gunfire coming closer and closer and closer to her. And she prayed in that moment that she wouldn't have to see her son and her husband killed. As she stood with her eyes closed, there was this sudden explosion. And when she opened her eyes, she was stood there with her husband and son, completely unharmed. A Lebanese tank had approached from another direction and had stopped the Syrian troops in their tracks. It was nothing short of a miracle as she stood there, seeing the destruction around her and the bodies and the shrapnel, and they were completely unharmed. Fifteen years later, she was again face to face with the Syrians as they had fled across the border to safety in Lebanon. She had accepted that her church was going to help them, but she just could not herself. She decided it, there was just no way that she could reach out to these people who had done that to her. Her son was in his, now in his 20s, and he'd started to work with the outreach group in the church. And one day told her a story of um, people that he had met, a family that he'd gone to visit. The outreach group had only a few food parcels left on this day and they needed to be delivered that day or the food was going to spoil. So he had this list of refugee families. He phoned the first person on the list and there was no answer. He phoned the second person on the list and he got an answer, but that family had moved on. He phoned the next family on the list, they too had no answer. He skipped the next family on the list and phoned the fifth and they answered and they were at home. So we took these food parcels and headed off straight away to that fifth family. As he arrived at the house, this young boy answered, and he said, we've been expecting you. And he said, oh yes, because I called. And the boy said, no, we expected you before you called. And Rosetta's son was unsure what he meant, but when Rosetta's son went through to the living room, there was 20 or so family members and extended family that were sat around this room. The boy proceeded to tell him that night before he had a dream. And he had dreamt, this young boy, who was not a Christian boy, but a Muslim boy from Syria. He dreamt that Jesus had spoken to him in the night. And he said, a man is going to come, and it's my representative, and he's coming tomorrow to bring food to feed your family. This family did not know Jesus, but they were filled with this immense hope when the young boy told them this story. So they gathered their family round and they were all sat there waiting for what Jesus was going to bring. And they'd gone days without food. And here was Rosetta's son, stood at the door, Jesus' hands providing and loving them. So as Rosetta heard this story from her son, she knew that Jesus was calling her to, to get involved. It took time. And Rosetta had this wonderful way of telling us in all her all honesty of just how hard it had been to forgive the Syrian people after the trauma she'd experienced. And she said it's an ongoing thing that she has to keep forgiving. But she knew when her son shared that story that she too had to go out and be part of this work that the church was doing. She brought herself as she was in all of her unforgiveness and everything that she was. And God used her in ways that she could never even begin to imagine. She felt that she did not have much to offer and that she couldn't do much. But Jesus used her as his hands. She told us of some stories that she now um, had witnessed herself after she'd gotten involved in people that she'd been working with and um, in the, the, the church that Tier Fund is working through with her. And each time she said that somebody from Syria tells her story to her. She believes that a droplet of their fear is going away. And I thought that was probably right. God is using Rosetta to heal his people. And this is such a marvelous example of God's love in action. So through this miracle of the loaves and the fishes, we also learn that Jesus uses his disciples to be his hands. The story depicts Jesus blessing the crowd through his disciples passing out the food Jesus could have manifested some sort of miracle that allowed the food to be in the hands of each person there, but instead he chose to use the disciples. By feeding the crowd through his disciples, we see how we, the church, can be the hands of God. Here in the UK, the churches in Lebanon and the churches in Jordan that I visited, and all around the world, God graciously involves us in his work. And we also learn about trust. The disciples had to trust that Jesus was going to provide the means to feed the crowd. And they could only give what they had received. Rosetta could only give what she had received. Now she had realised that she had received God's love. And when Jesus died on the cross for her, that was the gift that she had received. And this she began to give back. Give back. So this makes the disciples and Christ's current believers a huge part of God's plan in blessing others. And so I hope that gives you a little bit of an insight as to how Tier Fund works. We've been doing sort of work like this for 50 years, and it's about coming alongside churches. It's, it's rather than coming from the outside and inputting ideas into others, we actually allow the churches to come up with the ideas themselves. We help to release the potential within these communities, to help them see the skills that they have. Not what they don't have, but what they do have in their hands. And this values the churches that we work with. So it's a really great way of working. And I just love, it's amazing to see it. It doesn't see people as needy or in need of help or our solutions. It respects that they have ideas, skills and resources to bring to the table. And people like Rosetta just have so much to give. (laughs) And it empowers people to change their own situations. We don't need to be overwhelmed by the need in the world because the Lord has something in mind and it's his church. His church here in the UK and the worldwide church united bringing hope to the poorest of the poor. So I want to leave just by encouraging you all today. Like Rosetta, you might not feel like you have much but you can bring yourself Bring yourself to God, no matter how insignificant you may think you are, or your gifts are, or that your talents are. When you bring yourself to God, expect him to do far beyond what you could even imagine. He can use those gifts and talents that you have and do something extraordinary with it. We can trust that God doesn't want to just meet the needs of our children, of his children, but he wants to lavish his children with spiritual blessings. So I wonder if you want to ask yourself today, just like Jesus asked those disciples, what do you have? It's so easy to see all that we don't have. But ask yourself today, what is it that you do have? What's in your hands And yeah, next week, I believe that you're doing this wonderful collection um, for Tear Fund. And I just want to thank you so much in advance because, and I hope you're going to be encouraged just knowing how much this is going to support churches like the ones I've shared this morning and how much that is the church here partnering with these wonderful churches across and other sides of the world. Please do come and chat to me afterwards if you want to hear more about any of this or if you want to find out about how you can pray for the work, or if you want to just find out how you can um, sign up to give regularly to Tear Fund, please, please do come and chat to me. I'm happy to chat about any of that. And, yeah, I hope that that's an opportunity for you today to see how the little that we have in our hands can be multiplied by God to do the miraculous